This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom and Mind, a podcast about maternal mental health, discussing conception, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. Real stories from moms and family members who have made it from struggling to wellness, and interviews with experts and advocates who work for moms and families to get the help they need. This podcast is meant to offer information and awareness and is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Hi, and welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On this episode, we're going to be talking with Elise Springer. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist focusing on perinatal mental health, anxiety, depression, death and loss, HIV AIDS, substance abuse, and creative blocks. She's a training faculty and governing counsel for Maternal Mental Health Now, a board member for 2020 Mom, and a past co-chair of the Los Angeles County HIV Mental Health Task Force. We're going to be having an overview of perinatal mental health for the LGBTQ community. And the reason why I say overview is because there's quite a lot to discuss and talk about and understand here. But what Elise is going to share with us is for any of you who are new to LGBTQ and gender and sexuality, she's going to kind of break that down for you and for us, some things that would be good to know about in terms of identity and expression. We're going to discuss some of the cultural and social issues that impact perinatal mental health, and also some things related to trauma within the community and for histories of people who may identify as LGBTQ. So I hope this is a rich intro discussion, and we'll be having more of these discussions. I'd be interested in feedback from you about more things that you would want to hear. Should be a really rich discussion and good information to become familiar with LGBTQ individuals and perinatal mental health. And this is just the beginning of this conversation on the Mom and Mind podcast. I'm really hoping to make sure that everyone feels heard on this podcast. Hi, Elise. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Kat. It's pretty exciting to have the chance to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm really happy to have your knowledge here on the podcast with us. I know you do so much work in the perinatal mental health world, and I know you through multiple organizations out here in the LA area, so I'm excited to pick your brain. So maybe it would be great for you to start off and let us know about the work that you do. Sure. So I've been, let's see, for the last about, I guess it's been now about six years, I've been governing council for Maternal Mental Health Now, which is a local Los Angeles 
advocacy group and we do a lot of training and policy work and I'm on the training faculty there. And then for 2020 Mom, which is a national policy and advocacy group, and I guess it's been about three years now that I've been on the board there doing sort of, you know, all hands on deck is needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those organizations do such great work. Thank you for doing all that you do there. Is it okay to ask what prompted you to get into this field? Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, therapy in general was a career transition for myself. I used to work in the entertainment industry, but you know, I was sort of impacted by 9-11 just in terms of being very moved by the experience. And that sort of gave me a little bit of what am I doing with my life? And I'd like to do something that felt a little bit more profound and authentic for me. And that prompted a career change, which was a pretty big career change. And then, you know, I primarily for my early career in mental health had been working at AIDS Project Los Angeles. I was part of a pilot program there working with homeless who had HIV and AIDS and were in various stages actually of being homeless on their way to being homeless, on their way Mm -hmm. from being homeless, and then just being on the streets. And usually they had a comorbid substance use disorder. So primarily, you know, meth addiction. So I did that for many years and was co-chair for the LA County HIV Mental Health Task Force. And Mm -hmm. You know, that's actually, you know, my own personal story of how I got into perinatal was, you know, doing that work with the HIV community and the substance abuse community. You know, there's a lot of trauma. So I had a lot of experience working with trauma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, throughout my first pregnancy and childbirth, you know, I went through grad school, I went through all the training, I went through trauma training, I'd been trained in EMDR. And I had a traumatic birth experience myself. Mm. And just kind of at that time, it was sort of before a lot of the ACOG recommendations about laboring moms and definitely before any sort of birth justice movement. And I just had no idea that what I was experiencing was trauma. Mm. And I went to my OB, you know, probably about a month after my birth experience and was like, I'm crying every day. Is that normal? And her response was, well, that's just new motherhood. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so probably about two months postpartum for myself, you know, I was like, oh, I'm on maternity leave. Of course, this is a great time to do continuing education credits. Mm. And I happened to go to, you know, I don't know, whatever trauma CEU I happened to be in at the time. It might've even been like a Bessel van der Kock kind of, that's a very funny name for a guy who's really wonderful in trauma Mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had an aha moment, like, oh my God, I had a traumatic birth experience. So after that, you know, and kind of going through, I always tell this story, I had a very lovely and very experienced old analyst, you know, as my own therapist. And, you know, if you're listening, yes, no secret here, therapists have their own (laughs) therapists. Yes, we do. And so I like completely lovely, but just as an older man had literally just no concept of perinatal mental health. And once I kind of came to my own realization and did sort of my own research and understanding and had to bring that into my own personal sessions, I again had an aha moment, which is like, here I am Mm -hmm. a trauma therapist who, you know, went through school and got met in all these areas and was sort of told that this is just new motherhood right. when it wasn't. Right. 
And so that really propelled my desire to begin working in perinatal mental health. And so I just, you know, did all the training and started doing, you know, I worked a lot with Dr. Diana Barnes, just doing a lot of consultation. And that is how. Wow. What a great person to train with. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So amazing. So I'm, I feel really lucky to, to count her as a mentor, but so yeah, that's how I got involved. And that's sort of the, not only the transition from just another career to Mm -hmm. the helping profession, but then the work I was doing to getting involved in perinatal mental health. And it still astonishes me that we do not have training in schools. That's a whole other, I could go on about that for a whole another podcast. Right. Yeah. We can have just like a soapbox edition and (laughs) (laughs) go to town on all this stuff. Absolutely. So yeah, so that's my personal journey to perinatal. You know, in regards to working with the LGBTQ community, that really, obviously, again, because so much of my early career was working with the client base and working with LGBT community at AIDS Project Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So it's all sort of come together on some level, and now you're still helping community that you've been connected to for a while, but in a different way. Absolutely. So I'd really love to get into some kind of, I don't know, I guess, first off, some fundamentals so that people who are new to this kind of conversation about LGBTQ individuals can have kind of an understanding of how to navigate our conversation. So maybe, yeah, it'd be great if you could start off with just kind of explaining to people what LGBTQ stands for. Sure. So the first thing that I would say is that, you know, if you're listening and you are familiar or identify in the LGBTQ community, you know, I think it's important to just know that that part of what I'm trying to explain is like a basic understanding. And LGBTQ stands for lesbian, oh gosh, now I'm just going to get it wrong because I'm saying it so fast, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. And, you know, a lot of times people now get very astonished, especially older generations, because queer used to be a word that was not a good word to use. It was a defamatory word. Did I say that? Defamatory? It was a slur. And I think that over particularly even the last five years or so, it's been sort of taken back as a word of identity. So, you know, generally the easiest way when you're speaking to someone is to just ask, how do you like to be referred to? You know, how do you identify? Those are usually kind of what I start with. And I let whoever I'm working with lead the conversation Mm -hmm. because, I think there's a big difference in between kind of what I am saying and, you know, these sort of strict roles and then how someone identifies, they could be totally different. So I like to not make assumptions. So part of what you're talking about is like if people want you to call him or her or them or some other pronoun. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So pronouns are, again, I don't even give offer, you know, how should I refer to you or him or her? I just say, how would you like to be referred to? Because that just is a much easier and non-confrontational way to kind of start the conversation. Sure. The first thing I would sort of refer to is sex. And sex is what you are born with, who you are when you are given a sex assignment at birth, whether that is male or female. You know, there is a category called intersex. So sometimes you might hear LGBT 
LGBTQ, referred to as LGBTQIA. And the I would stand for intersex and the A is for asexual. But for kind of our purposes, sex is just sort of, are you born biologically male or female? That is your sex. Now, your gender identity is sort of, you think about it like a scale how much on one scale is your womanness? How on the other end of the scale is your manness? Where are you on a scale of gender identity? Mm-hmm. Are you someone who maybe identifies internally inside as more male or identifies internally as more female? Did mm-hmm. I say that correctly? Yes. Yeah. So that's an internal brain kind of identity. Gender expression would be how you would present to the world, whether you present more feminine, whether you present more masculine. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting is that someone can really identify as being very, let's say, female internally, but their gender expression may not be so feminine. Mm -hmm. So that's where people really, I think, sometimes get confused you know, we sort of look at someone and we make an assumption, but that's not necessarily how they identify. Right. And now all of that is very different than who you are sexually attracted to. Mm -hmm. So who you feel most drawn to. And again, you know, that might be something even different than who you're romantically attracted to. But that's sort of a basic explanation. Do you have any questions about that? Did I explain that clearly? (laughs) Yeah, that's good. I just wanted to make sure that people who are joining us in this conversation have kind of some fundamentals of understanding because, you know, there may be some folks that are new to this conversation and it's a good opportunity for them to also understand what we're talking about. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go. And that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Yeah. And in the context of sort of what we're talking about today, you know, we're kind of keeping it pretty narrow and particularly in regards to perinatal mental health and parenting, you know, we're really kind of talking right now about the LGBT community and parenting just for our purposes today as a big discussion. Oh yeah. And that's one of those things, you know, here we're talking for about, you know, half an hour or so about a very specific topic, but we could spend hours and days Absolutely. Um, talking about this. So this is really just kind of an overview and a glimpse into the specifically perinatal mental health for LGBTQ. Right. Exactly what we're talking about is what is a considerable challenge for the LGBT community, which is that there is a lack of understanding both about the difference between expression, identity, and sexuality, but there's also then as a consequence of that limited culturally sensitive services Mm -hmm. for the LGBTQI community. You know, there's these sort of stereotyped beliefs in who is a mother and who is a father. And, you know, there's limited access for services. I mean, I'm sure this has kind of been something, I know you and I have talked about this offline before, just that there's limited access for services outside of anyone who's a traditional family. And then even outside of that, anything out of the sort of mother-child heteronormative dyad. There's not a lot of services in policy and screening and even in the language that we use around, you know, maternal mental health. It's just sort of maternal mental health. Oh, right. Yeah. In part, that's kind of a carryover from a while back, the maternal idea, but I think there's a movement to paternal mental health and including the whole family anyways, and then that's a little more gender nonspecific. Yeah, and I think the difficulty too is that even as there's a sort of maybe emotional broadening uh, shift to include everybody, yeah. And understanding that, you know, perinatal mental health is not just maternal and it's not paternal. Perinatal mental health impacts everyone. Right. And what's so interesting is coming from the HIV world, you know, this is something that as a movement, the HIV community went through in the early days, you know, that originally was labeled GRID, you know, gay, sort of related to just gay men. And even the early sort of fundamental crisis centers were like the gay men's crisis center. Mm. And there had to be a shift to understanding, well, first of all, HIV and AIDS did not just impact men and it impacted everybody, women Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And that even outside of people who contracted, it impacted their family system. So similar to perinatal mental health, which is that you know, it doesn't have to be a bio mom or a bio dad, you know, adoptive parents or surrogate parents absolutely, you know, can have perinatal mental health issues. And even for someone who isn't necessarily suffering a perinatal mental health issue themselves, mm-hmm. it has such broad impact. Again, another soapbox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> perhaps left to another day. But for me, I find that I tend to try and use perinatal mental health more because it is then much more inclusive language, not just for, you know, mothers and families, but also for the LGBTQ community. Because a lot of times, you know, you can have someone who would identify as trans and they might be a trans dad, but biologically they are female and they might be carrying. And so again, you know, that's not a culturally sensitive way to refer, you know, if you're saying maternal that's not going to be someone who's going to access services at your clinic or practice Mm -hmm. because they don't feel welcome. Right. And there's not that many resources anyway, specializing 
Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, you know, in some LGBT community service organizations, there's beginning to be more, mm-hmm. but less perinatal, more child-focused. Like I'm just uh-huh. even thinking in Los Angeles, there is health services attached to the gay and lesbian community, but there hasn't been as much of a robust, I think, community for fertility to one year. You know, some of other organizations focus on how to, let's say, if you're a gay dad and you want to adopt or engage in surrogacy, there might be those services. But I don't think there's very many fertility services for women, not very many fertility services, and not very many OB services in those more traditionally safe spaces. So what I run into is that a lot of times these families and new parents or, you know, is aspiring parents, can I say that? I don't even know if that's right, but like Mm -hmm. someone who would aspire to be a parent ends up having to pass in a straight space. Mm. And this is something that I think contributes to distress in perinatal mental health. Let's say you are a mom who identifies as lesbian and you have a partner, but you go into, you know, I don't know, I'm going to make it up. Actually, I'm not going to give a a name of a hospital. I'll just say the hospital (laughs) or your OB's (laughs) office, a new OB's office. And, you know, the question is, oh, is dad going to join us? Mm -hmm. Right? Just an assumption. And even though there's more and more training about how to be culturally aware, there just isn't that. And even if it's not necessarily the OBs, it's the office staff. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the pictures on the wall, which only show these heteronormative families blissfully holding a baby. So right. it's that already you're kind of going into the situation. And then sometimes what ends up happening is if, you know, mom ends up kind of disclosing, oh, I'm gay. This is how I identify. Another question might be, well, how did you get pregnant? Mm. And so that there's this purient interest in, you know, how did you get pregnant? This would apply to the trans community too. Like how does Uh that work? Because your expression, your outward appearance might be more male, right? So then it's like a purient interest in what is your sexuality? How does that connect to your pregnancy? And it's pretty intrusive. So intrusive. I mean, I can just imagine some provider or office person or whoever in that position kind of maybe not, well, naively for sure, asking the question, but not really understanding the impact of that kind of a question and how intrusive it might be. Yes. You know, I think it's even interesting, like even the whole system is just, all of that is just so biased. You know, last Mm -hmm. year, 2016, I think in January of 2016, was the first time there was an AB, AB 1951, which passed in January of 2016, was the first time that in California, it listed parents for either box as opposed to mother and father. You could only check off like mother and father. Like on a birth certificate? On a birth certificate. And so if you were, you know, let's say you're two dads, two moms, a different variation thereof, or however you might identify, you would have to, like, how awkward is that to have to pick such a heteronormative dynamic? You know, now it's been changed to gender neutral, but that's only just this last year, and that's only necessarily that I know of in, in not every state. So, Wow. Right. So there's all these little 
know, microaggressions and potentially other big traumas that are happening too? Yeah, and you know, sort of a systemic isolation. I mean, we know so much of perinatal mental health involves such stigma. Mm-hmm. And then I think for LGBT community, you know, there's a lot of other challenges. There's a lot of historic trauma in that community including, you know, childhood traumatic stress, particularly when we're talking about people of childbearing age now. I think there's just even gay marriage being legalized for so many years, not having the opportunity to have legal protection with your partner. And depending on where you still live in the community, and particularly with today's political environment, you know, there's a lot of that sort of childhood stress. Who am I going to be when I grow up? Here's who I am when I grow up, but here's who I'm not allowed to be. Here's what people don't permit me to be. So this sort of childhood traumatic stress, whatever someone's coming out experience was, if that was traumatic, that might be something that would contribute, you know, higher risk of a higher ACE score, which I'm sure you guys have talked about on here before, the impact of the ACE score, the adverse childhood experience score. Right. So all of that leading into a pregnancy. Where then you're met with this sort of, oh, who's mom? Who's dad? How did you get pregnant? And, you know, how did you do it? Yeah. Right. And they're just trying to go in for prenatal care. I just want to know if the baby's okay. Like, can you just do a scan? Like, we don't need to talk about all this. What does that have to do with how healthy this pregnancy is, right? I mean, how I got pregnant. I mean, I can understand, I think, with some fertility stuff, for sure. But at the same time, that's not, you know, my sexual identity and how I have sex is not something that I feel like the OB needs to know. Right. The fact remains there's a baby or there's a pregnancy. Yes. And that's pretty much all you need to know. Right. You know, the other factor too, I think, you know, when we're talking about sort of some of the challenges that the LGBTQ community would face is that, you know, so not along with trauma, which might be higher incidence of childhood trauma, which I mentioned before, would be intimate partner violence. And Mm -hmm. there's a higher incidence for intimate partner violence in the LGBT community, particularly with lesbian women. So, you know, I'm quoting some stats here from the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, long-winded survey, but from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And let's say 35% of heterosexual women might report IPV. Now, we could argue whether reporting might be higher or not higher. We don't know. But the stats that they have for lesbian women is about 44% of lesbian women report intimate partner violence. And about Mm -hmm. 61% of bisexual women report IPV. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting is that there's maybe, you know, there's so few studies about, you know, the LGBT community and postpartum, but there was a 2015 study, a Canadian study. They found that women who were partnered with both sexes. So someone who maybe, whether they identify as bisexual or not, but that might be a label that we would give someone who partnered with both sexes. They had sort of the highest scores on the EPDS, on the Edinburgh. Mm. So they had higher scores and higher compared to women who had just partnered solely with women. So it's so interesting when you think about, oh gosh, so here are these statistics that say if you had sort of identify as bisexual, you have a higher incidence of domestic violence or IPV, intimate partner violence, 
and yet you're also scoring higher on the EPDS. And that sort of warrants further study to me. What does that mean? Right. And what does it mean that 44% of lesbian women are reporting IPV and how might that play into postpartum? And the sad thing is, is that we really don't know. I mean, I wish I could come on here and say, here are all these like really concrete stats about the LGBT community and perinatal mental health. And I can't. And part of that is that there's just so few studies. Yeah. And I think as we were kind of chatting about before that the lack of research and the lack of studies for any culture, ethnicity, even potentially religion, that's not just like straight white a male or female is severely lacking. Yeah. I mean, particularly in the U.S., you know, I just quoted a Canadian study, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm always like, I'm kind of a research nerd. I'm into it. And when I was looking a couple years ago, I was doing this presentation and I just couldn't find anything except for 2007 study that said just point blank lesbian women have higher rates of postpartum than heterosexual women. That's what it said. But then it said it warrants further study. And that was 2007. And here we are. It's 2017. And there's really been nothing subsequent of sort of more profound nature. You know, there's been a couple of qualitative and anecdotal studies, but there even then it's about, you know, New Zealand and 15 couples. Right. Oh, gosh. So it's just not an area. I mean, I guess I imagine if you're asking people directly, they will be able to tell you their stressors, them dealing with if they did have any trauma in their life or the difficulties they have at this point with talking to their family members or their friends or their, I don't yeah, know, I mean, group. When it, sure. When it comes to sort of like the clinical intervention of it, obviously, you know, you're going to check in with your client, but just one more like little soapboxy kind of thing, which is that when you think about the levels of who is parenting right now, you know, it's something like, nearly half of LGBT women. So let's say, I guess the stat would be, the actual stat is about 48%. So I'm Mm -hmm. raising it up. But about 48% of lesbian women are raising a child under 18. So, you know, if you have a client who identifies as LGBT in your office, I mean, when you think about your practice, what's the percentage? Maybe not so many because I don't know how many are getting help. Mm. That's so sad. It is sad. There's just like so many things that need to be addressed and need to be talked about. And, you know, I'm assuming that in part with the work that you do, you're able to help people kind of navigate these really difficult social, emotional, cultural, traumatic things that are impacting them. Right. So again, I think it just boils down to, you know, perinatal mental health is perinatal mental health, whether it's the bio parent or a non-bio parent, you know, that's not so different as someone who has adopted a child. But in terms of sort of clinically, then if we're talking about the clinical piece, understanding, I think the sort of systemic concerns, the lack of access to care, the sort of increased stigma Even within the own community, you know, like even amongst trans men who do get pregnant, you know, there's sort of like stigma, like, why did you bother to transition? Why did you kind of men get pregnant? Like there's just so much stigma in general, but being aware that it's not just necessarily 
what was it like for you to come out and does your family support you having children? Not only is it, you know, gosh, you had that experience at your OB where they were being so intrusive about how you got pregnant and who you got pregnant with. It's sort of like in your own community, are you accepted in your own community? You know, do you fit Mm -hmm. under one of these specific labels, you know, LGBTQ? Do you fit in that label or do you have a different level of gender expression and a different internalized gender identity that doesn't fit into a label? And how is that impacting you in your own community? Mm. So I think that, you know, again, much like I had said, I think we started out with saying, well, how do you identify, you know, how would you like me to talk about this with you? When I I'm asking clients that similarly when it comes to perinatal mental health, it's so much like, what's it like in your world? Yeah. What's it like to be struggling with all this sort of historic stuff, if that is the history for you? And then what is it like now having to navigate this sort of like, you know, this purian interest and this poster child syndrome, you know, oh gosh, I knew a lesbian couple once and they blah, 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 blah. Right? I mean, that's kind of like you know, a lot of times clients find themselves in this poster child where they kind of have to explain for the whole community, (laughs) which is so tricky, right? Because especially when we're talking about someone who maybe doesn't fit in categories. Mm -hmm. Right. To have then that stress also to be having to educate people or deciding to not to set a limit and say, I don't really want to educate you on this. Yeah. I mean, in either case, that's a stress. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not my job to teach you. I'm here to have my own experience. And then, you know, as the therapist, well, obviously then it becomes, well, what's that like for you? How can I support you? Mm -hmm. I find myself asking that a lot. What would be supportive in here? You need to, you know, I don't want the burden to be you teaching me, but like with any client, I do need to know your worldview. I do need to know your cultural experience. What's your family of creation like? And how is that different from your family of origin, if any? And how can I be supportive of your family of creation? What would that look like? So to clarify, family of creation, you're talking about the family that they are creating themselves, or are you talking also about... Yeah, I mean, when I say family of origin, just sort of like, what did you grow up with? That's your family of origin. And Mm -hmm. who is your family of creation? Who is your partner? Who Mm -hmm. is your social support? This is actually one of the tools in interpersonal therapy that I do like to use is that interpersonal circle Mm -hmm. where you kind of like have these concentric circles and you sort of ask people to place who is important and close to them in those circles. You know, if they're in the middle, who is sort of close to them, who is far to them. And it really gives me a sense then of who is important and who is supportive. And maybe who isn't supportive, but is still important. Right. Just like any other person, people need support and need to either if there's a community that feels unstable to them to find a stable group of people or community to have surrounding them just to get through this. Yeah. I mean, I think any sort of perinatal mental health can sometimes slip through the cracks with the community, with the LGBT mm-hmm. community. And I think that's reflected in some of the research when we hear, you know, and that lesbian moms get have a higher incidence. And it's so hard to know what that is, what is controlled for. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily the same as what it might be for someone who's in a heteronormative relationship. You know, I'm theorizing here, 
totally just theorizing, but I think that a huge piece of it has to do with this lack of reflection Mm -hmm. in the community. You know, again, I'm giving you my sort of like observational piece of just sort of understanding what it's like to go into a community and anything, you know, brochures, you know, showing heteronormative families, posters on the wall, any of that, and how might it feel to be trying to get care from someone who clearly doesn't understand you. I don't know. I mean, to me, that would be be depressing. Oh, well, yeah. Um, Stressful, potentially anxiety producing. Right. I'm feeling unsafe. Yeah. And so again, what's the history? If you kind of can say, look, you know, generation wise, the childbearing generation right now didn't necessarily have an easy time. Not Mm -hmm. that anyone does, but if we can kind of say, look, coming out was not easy. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness, and I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. There wasn't any of the kind of dialogue that goes on now, hopefully. And I think pre-Trump and post-Trump, there's a lot to be stressed about in the LGBT community. And what I'm noticing, you know, and this again is April 2017, is that there's an intense amount of fear because, you know, in the news, there's concentration camps in Chechnya where people who identify or have been identified as being gay are being sent to. And then you've got all this nationalistic rhetoric and not even rhetoric, but concrete discrimination in a variety of situations. How scary is that to bring a child into? Yeah. 
and again, I'm just speaking about a community. So then what's so interesting in terms of kind of keeping that in the forefront of our mind is what it must be like to bring a child into this kind of more or have a young child or a, you know a child under one or even a young child, right? In an environment where there is now this endorsed, I mean, just homophobia, mm-hmm. it's really frightening. The fact that the Trump administration took, you know, the LGBT page down, just all sorts of things. Right. So now, I mean, I'm thinking about all the different levels of stress and trauma that we've been going through. So just on some level, the incidence of postpartum depression is higher, but we don't know how or why. Right. The level of intimate partner violence is higher, but we don't know how or why. And that's in lesbians. You know, I don't, yeah. And that's lesbians with kind of in comparison to heterosexual women. Okay. They're potentially already having to be dealing with some trauma in their history and now just kind of trying to find a safe place to be, to live, to have a family where they are not having to worry about, as you were describing, the current political climate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm just going to throw one more sort of wrench in here. I don't even know if that's the right term, but the Williams Institute, which is, oh gosh, I want to get it right, is part of the UCLA School of Law. And so the Williams Institute put out kind of a white paper in 2013. So if you're interested in sort of more statistics on LGBT parenting, I would recommend that. You can just look up Williams Institute and LGBT parenting in the United States. But some of the things that they talk about, which is sort of this other piece that I'm mentioning, is about 39 to 40% of same-sex couples who have kids under 18 are people of color. So now you're talking about another kind of dynamic that you've got a racial diversity and ethnicity diversity in addition to sort of a gender expression and gender identity and sexual identity, and that this is a pretty intense mix. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I find so interesting that came out of that Williams Institute study is that same-sex couples raising children is most common in like some of the southern and mountain west and midwest regions of the country which is not what my assumption was and they talk about the highest proportions of same-sex couples raising bio adopted or stepchildren is like Mississippi wow and that's not necessarily like the safest place no for them <laughs> no not at all not at all So again, like I said, I could soapbox endlessly, but I think when we're talking about the clinical piece is, you know, it's just sort of a question that I like to raise because I try to do it for myself too. It's like, how do I continue to ensure that in my practice, you know, and I think just in the general, how I like to advocate to just sort of try to start using more neutral and non-gender biased, non-sexual oriented biased mm-hmm. language when it comes to perinatal mental health. I, th- I think it would always be referred to in that way and that, that we yeah. can't carve out different sections for moms and dads. But again, who is a mom and who is a dad? And the gender identity and gender expression and sexual orientation may not fit into that category. Right. 
And we do make mistakes and don't address someone how they prefer to be addressed or slip up or something like that, then own that and don't put it back on the person. Oh, no. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I, it just happens so much that you know, people get I, offended. And, all the time. And I have been corrected on more than one occasion. And I just kind of yeah. say, please tell me your experience. I am so sorry. I, you know, and again, particularly in communities where you're going to the doctor and the OB mm-hmm. and hospital systems, oh gosh, and I, you know, and nurses oh, yeah. and being met with hostility, please know my intent is not to repeat that. And please help educate me about your experience, right? What is your experience and how might I support you in your experience? Yeah. I mean, I know there's quite a few therapists and healthcare providers that listen to these episodes. So I'm hopeful that this information is helpful for them in being more supportive and more equipped to use compatible language with people. And also for anyone who's listening that identifies as LGBTQ, that, you know, I mean, part of the goal of this podcast on some level is to make sure that people, that everybody is heard on some level at some point in any number of these episodes. And that's why we're having this conversation is to help inform people, but also for folks who are listening to to feel like they're heard. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully to start to advocate in whatever own small way, whether, you know, if you're a clinician, just being sort of more open, looking at your practice, seeing, you know, how could I be more you know, LGBTQ friendly, you know, what kinds of materials am I passing out? It could Mm -hmm. not be more neutral in any way. You know, is the language on my website, could that be more neutral? Or if you're interested in more training, how to get more training, you know, doing sort of a basic LGBTQ training on awareness. And I think too, if you're a policy person and listening to this, I would really encourage you to start to think about what mom means and think about some of those statistics that we're talking about really large numbers of people who don't identify as heterosexual are raising Mm -hmm. children and are raising children under 18. And I'm sure the Williams Institute maybe even breaks it down further, but just to keep that in mind. Um, And then again, you know, for the LGBT community, who are listening, I would encourage you, I'm going to say this, Kat, if I would encourage you to, if you have something to share or, or you know, please continue this dialogue. Oh, of <laughs> continue course. Continue this dialogue on this. It would be really wonderful to have a different perspectives other than a clinician perspective. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's for sure the goal. I do. I thank you for your perspective and for bringing the conversation to the podcast and doing a little bit of education and information sharing with people. I know this goes out to quite a few folks out there. I'm certainly hoping that anybody out there who you know of anybody else who could use this information, please do share. So thank you so much, Elise, for taking the time to share this with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it and appreciate your patience with my stumbling around words, right? So that's, this is sort of my first time on a podcast and it's, (laughs) you've been so gentle. I appreciate it. Oh no, thank you. I really want to thank you too for the work that you do. This is really wonderful to have these kinds of outlets for some communities that might not have a voice otherwise. So thank you. Thank you so much. 
So I'm hopeful that that was a good beginning conversation for us to have on this podcast. As you can see, there's so many different things that we really need to get more into and understand more deeply. So I'm interested to hear if you guys have any feedback or if there's anything else that you'd like to hear about. We will be addressing this and many other culture-specific topics in future podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us today. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, help is available. Please look for resources for help at momandmind.com. Also, please subscribe and share this podcast. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Thank you for being a part of the Mom and Mind community. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.